0: What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday evening to you all. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast coming at you. If you're joining us live, welcome. If you're joining us after the fact, that's okay too. We still love you regardless. I'm Anthony Kazenza, joined as always by John Sheeran, Randall keeping a watch on things behind him. John, what's what's going on, my man?
1: I'm doing pretty well, man. I'm doing pretty well. Um, coming off of a de- decent week from from myself. How about you, man? That's,
0: that's- It's going, it's going. We were talking about some things beforehand and uh, it's going, you know, and then we've got some big news coming tomorrow across the NFL. Some of it has been leaked. I don't know how much stock we can take into it at this point, but um, we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about one specific rookie in this class that we we've talked about a little bit since he's been drafted, but some more. Items and facets around this selection have have come out of late, and we want to talk about him, and we're going to have a little fun, believe it or not. We haven't done that for a little while. We'll have a remember when, and we'll get to a lot of different stuff. Got a lot of bases to cover, so we will get everything started for you. Again, Anthony Cazenza, John Sheeran. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals Podcast, part of the Cincy Jungle Podcast Network. If you are new, you got to go on your favorite audio streamer, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, any of those and more. We are there. You got to subscribe to the Cincy Jungle podcast channel. You got to give us a rating as well, hopefully, a five star one. We would appreciate that if you like what we're doing. And of course, if you like the video platforms, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's our show icon beneath John and that SB Nation logo. You can click that to subscribe, click the bell to be notified when we go live, when new content is available. And you also got to give a thumbs up to the Cincy Jungle Facebook page because we stream live there. We stream live on Twitter accounts. We're on a lot of different places. So you got to catch us live if you want to see us screw up in person as it happens or else (laughs) get the clean version, I guess, a little bit after the fact on all of those platforms. Well, John... We, we kind of talked about it a little bit, and we'll, we'll obviously tag team this, but when the Bengals made a selection in the fourth round this year, Cordell Volson, an offensive lineman that really not many of us who followed the team, not many of us who were looking at offensive line prospects, this was not a guy really deep on our radar. Um, he was a guy that was from a small school, North Dakota State, and the Bengals of late have kind of used a couple of these picks on some of these smaller school guys. You see Cam Sample out of Tulane, North Dakota State, Volson. You go back to Logan Wilson, Wyoming. I mean, not, not the uh, the SEC, Pac-12, Big you know Big Ten, all, all these schools that they usually like to tap. They've gone in the middle rounds in some of these small school guys. Volson at the time, I think a lot of fans were like, "Who?" But now, as we learn more, uh, there's a lot to like about him. And there could be a little bit more than I guess meets the eye a little bit. I'm going to share, first of all, an article that you wrote up on cincyjungle.com, and I will pin that link for the live chats there. But in this article, you tapped some inside information from the Athletics' Paul Daner Jr. on a great write-up on that, and we'll share that. But why don't you kind of tee us up a little bit on, on Volson? And the article is titled, Why the Bengals Drafted Him. And there are some good reasons here that uh, – were used as nuggets as to why i
1: think volson is the ideal draft pick as an example for why a lot of our mock drafts are pointless and useless leading up to the draft because when you said that not a lot of people knew about volson when they drafted him it was like who is this guy and i think you said it perfectly it's a lot of the things that we don't know that go into the draft process that ultimately impact decisions and you know who these teams end up actually investing draft picks in and when it came to volson he was a six-year senior out of north dakota state obviously didn't play on a lot of espn games for college football fans or Bengals fans to see but he's been in like the draft conversation i think for a couple years because he could have declared any at any time in the last two years, and I believe it was Mike Potts who mentioned that he was he fr- he was first brought to attention to Volson like last year during the process when he could have declared, but then they knew about him going up into this year. But it was during the off season, like in this draft season, where the Bengals really started to learn more about the person who Volson was, like on the field very physical player. You like anyone with two eyes can see that the type of player that he is and how that matches up with what Frank Pollock likes in an offensive lineman, but the person, right? the, The individual and all the intangibles that we don't know about these players. We only hear tidbits about what, you know, agents want to leak about certain players and whatnot, if it drives their agendas and everything with Volson at the combine, Every player takes a player assessment test, a PAT. It's been in circulation of the combine for like 10 years. It's not the wonderlick, but I think there are some similarities in, in regards to how you kind of compose yourself. You know, it bas- it's basically quantifying how good of a teammate you are. I don't know, like, obviously what goes into the test and whatnot, but it, it's scored out of like a one to 10 range. Alex Kappa, I believe, and this is all according to Paul Dana Jr. on his, athle- his article at, at The Athletic, Alex Kappa scored, I think, really close to a 10. And Volson also scored really close to a 10 um, in, in this past combine. And that corroborates a lot with what the Bengals, I think, learned about Volson, who he was in North Dakota State, how he was such a favorite within the coaching staff, how he was th- this guy who took to coaching really well, loved the process, loved just the overall, like, the, the whole football life aspect to being a football football player which is what they kind of lost out on when they drafted like a Jackson Carmen last year, which is where all the struggles came with him as a rookie. I think when you look at Volson and just the way that he approaches the game and everything that we've learned about who he is as as a person, I think that really went into ultimately making him the fourth round pick in this year's draft. We don't know where he necessarily was graded on the draft board. He wasn't like maybe the best player available like Dax Hill was in the first round or Tyson Anderson was in the fifth round but he is the perfect example of not knowing what goes into how teams value players because there's a lot of personal information that we just aren't privy to from the outside but these teams have access to so much personal information and all this other data that isn't publicly publicly released and a guy like bolson sometimes ends up scoring off the charts and really climbing high in the eyes of some of these personnel members because of things again that we just don't know
0: yeah and here's some tidbits this is via eric galko um uh, covers the nfl does a great job there as does paul daner for the athletic we got to try and get paul on the show sometime here but uh, you can see here here's here's the the verbiage of what you're talking about with the pat test at the combine that measures from one to ten uh, on the on the score scale and then of course it's measuring good teammate work ethic cognition etc um and, and then you mentioned of course alex kappa who who did well on this, I guess, exam here, but scored at the top of the class here, which wasn't a surprise, but rather confirmation of the evaluation is how Daner puts it. And then, of course, here, this is this is what goes back, John, to w- w- if you're watching this on, on the video platform, what you're seeing here, and I'll, I'll state what it says, but what you're seeing here from Paul Daner Jr. in, in The Athletic is really corroborating the this is a Frank Pollock guy, right? Uh, much of his degree is rooted in finishing and a will to win. He really caught the eye of the rest of the personnel staff during one-on-ones in the East-West Shrine game, writes Daner. The Bengals invested a ton of time and research into this side of the offensive line equation uh, equation this year, specifically coming off of year when the year when the will was lacking in second-round pick. Jackson Carmen, interesting way to put that there, but... This to me here when when you write, um, when you when you wrote this article about why the Bengals took this guy, I, when you hear finisher, will to win, etc., maybe not again the highest athletic profile. If you look at his RAS score as a tackle, it's pretty low. Some people are showing some different differing scores of him as a guard, which is in the eights or sometimes the nines, depending on which one you use, whether that's combine or whether that's pro day, etc. But this, this kind of stuff is is what, for the Bengals, as they drafted a lot of these guys who have the high athleticism, particularly in the defensive backfield, you look at this and you say, okay, this is this is where the Bengals maybe went a little bit of, an, of a different direction, at least if you're looking at the RAS scores from Volson as a tackle, but it, it this is the kind of stuff that Frank Pollock wants out of his offensive linemen, and this is kind of why they went this route. My question to you, and just getting your opinion on this. I mean, we make a big deal about PFF scores. By the way, Volson, I believe, had about an 89 or so last year overall grade, if I if I remember correctly. But we make a big big deal about RAS scores, PFF scores, et cetera, and and for good reason. But you look at kind of these intangibles, and what's funny is these intangibles were actually put a they they put a score on the intangibles, right? <laughs> with this with this test, so to speak. I don't know. I mean, if, if you're saying maybe not the maybe not tested as the best athlete and and that sort of thing, how, how much do you think this score then kind of wipes away some of those deficiencies in that, in those areas, if at all?
1: Well, I mean, for starters, I don't think he's a bad athlete. And I'm not saying that, that you're saying he's a bad athlete. It's like right. it's not the athleticism that stands out when you look at him. Like uh James Daniels, for example, like that was his main calling card coming out of Iowa. That's why a lot of Bengals fans wanted the Bengals to sign him this free agency because he's like this ideal zone blocking center. So you're right. Like it's not the athleticism that stands up with Volson. It's the physicality. It's the toughness. It's the mental aptitude that you can't really quantify. And that's why I'm not, I don't really know what to think about this PAT test. I think there's a reason why we don't know about it, or maybe a lot of us haven't heard much about it. it. Yeah. yeah, Because there's a reason why it's called intangibles. You, You can't, it, it, they're, they're not tangible right you can't quantify them it's it's all about it, it's very subjective it's about perspective and it's what you individually value in a person and what their character is now there's some things that you can say are objectively good to have in in a person in terms of their personality and, and their character traits and whatnot but it, it is kind of a, a shaky area a little bit i think if you go too far to quantify it you might end up uh, stereotyping or, or getting into a lot of generalizations. But in general, I think when you, you talk about Volson, he, he seems to be one of those picks where because no one really knew a lot about him and initially it was it was viewed as they just took this guy because he's an offensive lineman and he kind of fits the bill as this physical guy that that fit the, the intangibles of what Pollock wants. But maybe he wasn't really worth that pick at that juncture. And in the past, we've seen... After those types of picks, a lot of things come out about the player, about the person, as to why he was worth this pick, as to why he's being talked at as a potential starter at left guard, and you start to see the justification propaganda train moving. But I think the most, for the most part, what we're reading and what we're learning about Volson is objectively positive, and I think it kind of it does correctly justify the investment. And, and again, it's like the 136 pick. You're not talking about a premium pick at w- with this player. So I, I think in the end, it, it remains to be a solid pick. It remains to be something that a lot of research was put into this player. A lot of research was put into this position in general. I think back to what Frank Pollock said at the combine when he talks about what he looks for in his offensive lineman. And that's where the that's where the glass eaters comment came up. And when I heard yeah. about that, I thought, yeah, like that applies more to draft to to the NFL draft because you have a wider range of options as to who you can. Bring in because you're not buying these players. You're drafting them and they have to be available at your draft picks. It's harder to find those types of guys in free agency, but the Bengals managed to do both, really. They signed three free agents who kind of fit the bill of what they were looking for from the intangible side. And they found this guy in Volson, who also seems to be that as well. So they brought in now four, three definitely three definite new starters, but potentially another fourth starter that all fit the bill as to what they were targeting, as to what they were identifying, guys. Who not only fit the bill on the field, but are really committed to the process, who are really committed to the coaching. At least one player who we know works well with this certain coach in Frank Pollock, two guys in Alex Kappa and Ted Karras who have been in the league, yeah. who, who know the, who know the experience, who know the process, who have experienced winning at the highest level, who can come in and set the standard and set the example for some of the young guys. Now they have a guy in Volson who, I mean, he's not he's young, but he's not terribly young. He's like 24 years old. A guy who I think also fits that bill. And whether or not he's the perfect fit in a zone blocking scheme, I think all of the other technical um, attributes that he possesses and the way that he takes the coaching, I think that can potentially make up for some of those deficiencies.
0: And to the chagrin of, of our buddy, Bengal Sons, I know North Dakota state is a team that is very, very successful at the, uh, the subdivision level in the NCAA. So I mean he comes from a championship pedigree as well at at the you know kind of the the subdivision um in in college football so I mean that that team I think is one if I remember, I think he's been a part of three or four championship teams if I'm not mistaken yep. um uh, so I mean again kind of plays into the mold um I would I would love to see what some of these specific questions on this test entail um <laughs> I, w- I would love <laughs> love to see um well, you know, how people answer it and what the questions are, uh, you know, it's kind of you, you get some of this stuff from the wonder And I'm I'm wondering what what the questions are asked of here. But, um, yeah, I mean, again, this is this is just a guy that I think just fits what they like. And the fact that Kappa scored well in this test as well. There's there's a theme here. I'm sharing a, an article here too, John and, I you know, I want folks to go, I'll, I'll pin the link in the live chats as well. This is from Matt Minnick, who also does uh, the coach speak and chalk talk episodes on the Cincy Jungle podcast channel, but he breaks down a lot of film for us at Cincy Jungle because he's the coach, the coach, but you know, there's, there's some good, there's some bad, and you can see some of the clips here. And again, go follow him at Co- coach, coach Um, coach Minnick on Twitter. If you have not done so already, um, just a couple of, of videos here. I know I shared some when, when he was first drafted um, and you can see here, he's, he's got the down block here and springs a nice play. So, I mean, there, there's some good, there's some bad in Minnick here, John, I don't know if you, you kind of saw some of the, the write up here, but you know, there's, there's some issues. He talks about being an extremely aggressive blocker, but inconsistent. Again, I think that comes with the, the level of play that he was at and, you know, obviously being a younger player and needs to get some professional coaching uh, on him, but he gets good push. You see a lot of this, a lot of the verbiage that you like from, from Minnick here. And then of course, it's just kind of saying, you know, talks about the good, the bad, and and maybe not so much the ugly, but uh, I don't know, some good, some good and interesting stuff here. I don't know if you've had time to kind of dissect all these clips and if you've had some takeaways, but again, imperfect player, but a high level of effort, and there are some some very good facets on the tape.
1: Yeah, I think in, I mean, first of all, that first clip that uh, Mindy posted, I know that kind of broke his heart because he did coach at South Dakota State. That's where he did get some of his coaching. Career <laughs> that, that clip was against his beloved Jackrabbits. I that's right. State that's right. Yeah, that rivalry. But um, this is, I think, how you should generalize the the Volson pick. Imperfect players, sure. Very old, at least in terms compared to other NFL, or rookies in the NFL didn't play against quality competition in North Dakota state, but he comes into the league with the things that like, he just comes in with a good base that Pollock knows what to expect out of him. He, and I think this is what Taylor said, Zach Taylor said in the press conference, like you value the guys who you don't question, you know how they're going to be on certain days, you know, that they're going to be involved in the game plan. You know they're going to ask questions. You know they're going to be engaged in practices. You know that they're going to take all the steps leading up to the actual game and be pre- mentally prepared, be mentally right, be mentally checked in with all of their teammates. I think Volson comes in as a rookie with that mentality, that base already set. And Pollock's like, okay, this guy is already set in this in this stage of of his career in, in these types of in, in this general area. All I need to do now is coach him up on some of the things that he can improve upon. There might be some things that he will never be able to do as a left guard in the NFL. He probably won't be able to be a tackle with, you know, whatever limited athleticism that he has at that position. But if I can get him to just improve in a couple things, I know he's going to have the right mindset. I know that he's going to have the, the right character. He's going to carry himself correctly. He can last in the NFL a long time with a lot of those things on his side. It's up to me as the coach Pollock to basically get the most out of him. And I'm confident that I can because he's going to take the coach and he's going to listen. He's going to do the right things. And I think that was the most important thing when I, with, with identifying an offensive lineman who can compete for starting time. Because it is tough to start as a rookie, not only at any position, but especially at offensive line. And Pollock is not like he's a great coach, but he demands the most out of you. Right. And that's what that's why people respect him. That's why his players respect him. And it's going to take a lot out of Volson to actually earn that position But if he comes in as the same type of person he was in North Dakota State, he definitely has a good shot if he just takes to the coaching.
0: Interesting dichotomy here. You know, you talk about how in terms of the two guys you would assume are two of the front runners, if not the front runners. I mean, you've got Deontay Smith and, you know, whatever the plan is with him going forward here. He might be an option in the interior, obviously, developmental tackle project, too, but it's interesting when you look at Jackson Carmen, Cordell Volson, and the dichotomy between the two. Um, you mentioned, you know, I, I don't know this firsthand, but Paul Daner Jr. mentioned in the Athletic article that the will of Jackson Carmen was in question last year. There were some questions about conditioning and that sort of thing as well. And then, of course, there's the ugly story out there that is still lingering around from Jackson Carmen. And then you've got Cordell Volson. You mentioned he is a lot older and comes from you know the, the the will is there scored high on this pat exam and all of that there's but you've also got Jackson Carmen a, a guy who was one of the youngest players on the roster last year and still has a, a good amount of talent to mold so it, it's it's kind of an interesting balancing of the scales i guess uh between the two players who are essentially vying for the starting position at least seem to be the front runners at this point
1: again it's Carmen coming into the NFL with questions not only on the field but off the field. At least with Volson, the questions are just on the field. And I think that was, again, the biggest factor with yeah. with identifying someone who can actually beat out Carmen for the job. And Carmen might still be the more talented player. He's got NFL experience over Volson. We, we Again, we don't know what the deal is with him. And if anything is going to come out of that, we're just going to see how that plays out. But That was probably just the biggest thing for him. Like find me a guy who I know can come in and can take the coaching and can actually compete in practice and do the things that I want him to do. If he's not good, he's not good, but it's not going to, it's not going to be because he didn't succeed from his own doing. It's going to be because of me, the coach.
0: Yeah. Good point. Well, Cordell Olson getting a little bit of attention and uh, you know, as, as a lot of folks kind of were, were sitting there going, you know, kind of taken aback by the pick initially, as you learn more about this player and as you see more on film, um, he grows on you. And it sounds like he was a guy that continued to grow on this coaching staff and Frank Pollock for a number of different reasons. So we'll have to see exactly what happens. It's going to be an interesting training camp battle. A lot of other positions are set this year as opposed to last year. So uh, that, that position obviously is one of the few that remains that left guard spot Open at least at this point right now we had a question real quick uh i think it was from dave lennox um just as we begin to switch topics a little bit are you guys going to do a show tomorrow night after the schedule release to discuss it um yes we're going to do something tbd in terms of of time and whatnot i know john has to do a little bit uh on the site as do i and then of course we're gonna we're gonna do a show here um we may I have to get a little uh, get a little creative with the timing, and or we may have a cameo from my, my oldest son Regan again on the on the show because I got solo dad duty tomorrow, and I've got to figure all uh, the whole thing out there. But we'll we'll figure out something. And we're going to bring you something for sure on the show, and there's going to be a ton on Cincy Jungle from John Jason. Drew Garrison, I mean, the, the whole crew, Patrick Judas, um, myself, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be hammering a lot of different stuff on the schedule release. So, yes, we will do something tomorrow. We will let you know. you got to follow us on Twitter at BengalsOBI. We'll give you a, kind of a programming note tweet out there to let you know what's going on and or, of course, if you subscribe to our channels, you'll you'll know when we are going to be doing something live here. So thanks for the question and thanks for the interest on that as well. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's keep going, John. And we will do something that we have not done. We're going to have a little, a little fun, I guess, game in a way. Um, we'll do something we have not done in a little while. And that is a believe it or not. And in case... You do not know about Believe It or Not. This is where we kind of come up with a handful of topics, and we kind of, it's kind of a fun little true or false game, a little bit based on some Bengals topics. So let's get to it. All right. Well, I guess we can start with one topic here, and that will be the safety position. Now, a lot of uh, a lot of talk right now in this offseason and obviously last offseason has all been about Jesse Bates and rightfully so. Is he going to play on a franchise tag for a second year in a row? Is he going to sign a long-term deal with the Bengals? Is he going to go get a lot of money elsewhere? All kinds of different things. But a little bit lost. We talk about it, but a little bit lost in the Jesse Bates discussion and in the safety discussion is Vaughn Bell, who um, his contract is now going to be up after this year, signed a three-year contract in the 2020 offseason. All of a sudden that went by very fast. He's got one year remaining on his contract, been a very valuable member on this defense, um, obviously does things that Jesse Bates maybe is not his biggest strengths and vice versa Bates to to Bell, but they've been a good safety tandem for this team since they've been paired together. So believe it or not, with the Bates contract looming, and or he may or may not be a Bengal going forward. The draft class that the Bengals just put together, and where where Bell is at in his respective career. True, uh, believe it or not, true or false, that Von Bell will be a Bengal past twenty two at this point in time. John Sharon,
1: I don't believe it, and there are a couple of reasons why. I'm just going to look at the facts here. The Bengals don't like to pay guys on their third contract. They don't like to pay guys over the age of 27 or 28. They have a lot of deals on the other side of the ball coming up, and they still want to re-sign Jesse Bates. Now, I don't know if Jesse Bates, if if that whole situation is ultimately going to impact Von Bell in a way, because I think they're independent and also the resigning of Von Bell is going to take place. If it does take place, it's going to take place before free agency of 2023. And at mm-hmm. that point, I think Jesse Bates is either a Bengal long-term or he's going to go someplace else that those negotiations aren't going to go up all the way up until the spring of 2023. I just look at Von Bell. And to me, if CJ Uzama can go to another team for a deal, that's very similar to what the Bengals probably could have, or, Maybe close to what they offered, then I think anyone in that caliber of player is definitely eligible or able to jettison from this team, regardless of their impact on the field and off the field as a leader. And I think Von Bell classifies as one of the leaders of this team. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people think that he can break the mold as to who the Bengals typically like to re sign and who they like to reinvest in because of his impact. And also because if Jesse Bates is gone, then Von Bell re-signing him makes a ton of sense. Then you have a duo of Dax Hill and Von Bell as your starting safeties for the foreseeable future for the next three or four years together for however, however long a Von Bell deal happens. But there's definitely a scenario where both Jesse Bates and Von Bell are gone, and I don't think just because losing out just because the Bengals are probably going to lose out on re-signing Jesse Bates, I don't think that automatically means that they're going to go full in in bringing back Von Bell because of the other factors that I just mentioned. If if he was coming off of a rookie deal and he was a couple of years younger, I think there was I think that would be a lock. But just because of the other factors that they've shown that they don't like to really reinvest in because of that, regardless of the money, I think they're just going to have a lot of money tied up elsewhere. I think for those reasons, regardless of what happens what happens with Bates, they're going to be looking at a Von the replacement as well.
0: Uh, you know, I, I kind of am inclined to disagree with you on this. Usually we see eye to eye on a lot of this stuff. And I, I, not that what you said didn't make sense because it totally makes no, sense. No, no, Tell me why I'm but, wrong. But no, <laughs> but <laughs> here's why you're wrong. No, um, I, I mean, I I, I definitely see your, your points on that for sure. But my my thing is I see, I do see potentially a situation. If you go back to, I know this is a, a, a while ago in different position. Than this, But if you go back to the, the whole, do we extend Carlos Dunlap or Michael Johnson thing a handful of years ago, they had a contract out to Michael Johnson. He said no, then they gave it to Carlos Dunlap, Dunlap signed it, and the rest kind of went for, in history there. It ended up working out for the Bengals anyway. They got Michael Johnson back after one year away um, because he just was injured and ineffective in Tampa Bay. Besides the point, I could see a scenario like that where they say, this is the deal we have on the table for you, Jesse. And even though you do different things, you and Bell, I mean, they, it's its a safety position contract. This is what we're offering. Maybe some sort of similarities in that respect. But the other thing is that I do see, you know, Bell bell is an athletic guy for sure. Uh, I, I, the guys they brought in and their athletic profile, their size, etc., is a little bit more... Jesse Bates-ish in terms of what they bring to the table on a defensive side of the ball instead of maybe a little bit more in, in the box type of safety or kind of, you know, a, a little bit more of the physicality stuff. Now, that's not to say Dax Hill, Tyson Anderson aren't physical guys. Anderson Anderson has a little bit more size there, but, you know, I, I just see Bell as a little bit more of that enforcer type safety, kind of a little bit more of the old school mold in a strong safety type as opposed to what the other two new guys bring. So I just I kind of see that I don't know that they're going to pay Bates. I think Bell's going to be more affordable. You're going to want to keep at least one of those guys, I feel. And maybe the skill set that Bell brings is a little different than the guys that they currently brought in this draft class as contingency plans for the safety position in general.
1: Yeah, and I also think that just because they lose out on both Bates and Bell doesn't mean that they don't look to free agency to replace at least one of them, and that could be with someone who's also coming in to a second contract and is also on the a little bit of the younger side. Bon Bell is actually, I always think he, I always do think he's a little bit bigger than what he is, but he's actually like 5'11", 200. I think Tyson Anderson is taller and and bigger. Than taller than both yeah. bon, bon Bell, yeah. So it, I definitely don't think they want to go into twenty twenty three with a hole at, at both of those spots or at least to fill in with both um, second year players and Tyson Anderson and Dax Hill. But it just comes down to what they, if they want to stay true to those philosophies and maybe Yvonne Bell is the guy that breaks it, but let's move on here to another topic going to go to the other side of the ball. We're going to talk about T Higgins for a second here because T Higgins quietly was not far behind Jamar chase in terms of average yards per game in the games that he did play. It's just that T. Higgins played a little bit less than Jamar Chase this year because he was dealing with injuries. He was recently cited at Bengals OTAs without a sling on his uh, surgically repaired shoulder. So it looks like he's going to be, if not all systems go, most systems go for training camp in, in a couple of months. And there's a definite opportunity that he plays more and just continues to progress as the team's other number one receiver. Maybe not even a number two, but just, 1B in this situation because of how talented he is along with Jamar Chase so believe it or not Anthony T Higgins not Jamar
0: Chase leads the Bengals in receiving yards in 2022 I don't believe it but I think it's going to be more of a run for the money than maybe what we saw this year and I think I think when you look at the reason I say that is you know I don't want to say Jamar Chase took everybody by surprise last year, but there was a little bit, it just, the team in general was, I think, surprised. people caught people off guard in terms of what they could do. I think a lot of people thought they were building something great, but they were maybe a year or two away. And a lot of these guys are very young Jamar chase, taking the year off of football, uh, coming into the NFL, you know, the lack of the offensive line. Is he even going to be able to put up stats, the whole thing. But now the question is, okay, year two, he was amazing. As, as was Higgins, but Chase was amazing and he, he set the records and he did all this stuff. Uh, how much more are teams going to just bracket and game plan for him and make it beat, beat him another way? Now, thankfully, the Bengals have a lot of different options and Higgins being one of them. Higgins had obviously an outstanding Super Bowl. I think if the Bengals would have won that Super Bowl, you'd have an argument that Higgins would have been the MVP of that game. But, you know, you, you look at, you look at a, a lot of different, things and and elements and I think when you look at Chase maybe getting bracketed a little bit you may see a little bit more of an evening of the scales there in terms of statistics between the two I still think Chase wins out he's too good he's he's too explosive but I think I think T will be closer than a lot of people think based on what we saw especially late in the year last year
1: yeah I think you said it about as good as possible there's not much for me to add I would just say that this topic I think exists because there is a reality where Jamar Chase is garnering a ton of attention on defenses last year um this year compared to last year, just kind of like how it was in the middle of twenty twenty one. But I, I think that only becomes a thing if Chase isn't as good as we think he is. And I think we all believe that Jamar Chase is as good <laughs> as advertised, and that just dictates that that that, that it just means he's going to get the ball and he's going to do great things with it. So I, I think Chase is going to get his production, no matter what, just because he's he's that dude. He is him. And T. Higgins right now is just in an offense with Jamar Chase, which means he's probably not going to be as productive. But that has no bearing, and that should not impact how he's seen as a quality receiver.
0: Yeah, I, I I'm with you there. Let's let's keep going with a couple more here, having some fun with the believe it or not segment. We. Have had this guy on our show uh, a couple of times, very entertaining Malik, Wright from the right way (laughs) sports network. He really called a shot today that I found to be very, very intriguing and, and I eyebrow raising and in a good way, but one that's, that is a bold proclamation as we talk about what Higgins can do in this offense and what he will do, what chase can and will do in this offense. The Bengals and oh, let's not get on CJ Uzama topic because that on Twitter was another whole. Oh, we'll deal get there today. Okay, we'll get there. Okay, um, <laughs> but Uzama's replacement in Cincinnati after he left to go to the Jets was Hayden Hurst, and here is a tweet if you have not seen it from Malik Wright, and I will enlarge it just for the for the sake of argument here. Hayden Hurst will have a 2015 like or Tyler Eifert-esque type of season. Eifert benefited from Green, Jones, and Sanu. Hurst will benefit from Chase, Higgins, and Boyd. Everyone's focused on the wideouts. Trust, not to mention a revamped offensive line. Now, we are talking essentially, John, when Tyler Eifert, he still missed a handful of games, but when he played in 2015, he was averaging a touchdown a game. A touchdown reception a game. Uh, Hayden Hurst... Has not come close to that, but he has athleticism, and he's been a productive player. Obviously, this seems to be a very good situation for him. Believe it or not, Hayden Hurst will have a 2015 Tyler Eifert esque type season in 22. John Sharon,
1: hey, let's yeah, let's go back to 2015. Let's try to remember what Tyler Eifert did because it wasn't he wasn't doing Rob Gronkowski, Travis Kelsey esque type things necessarily. He had 52 receptions for 615 yards and 13 touchdowns in 2015. So it was the touchdowns that really stands out there. Like you said, won a game because he played 13 games because he was injured for three games. So he wasn't just completely dominating week in and week out and, and running, running the field with some of these guys like some of the other elite tight ends. But in the red zone, when the Bengals were finishing drives, and they did that so often in 2015 with how explosive they were, it was Tyler Eifert that I think led the team in touchdowns and was the guy finishing and capping off a ton of drives. And I think with, with what Malik was saying is that so much attention is going to be placed on Chase, Higgins, Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon as well out of the backfield. That Hearst is now this fifth option in the starting offense, in the starting receiving core, and he's going to get one-on-one matchups going up the seams, being this vertical threat that Joe Burrow hasn't had at the tight end position and now is three years in the NFL and he will have opportunities to find open, vacant spaces in the red zone and in the end zone. And I think that does give him a good chance of getting near 10 touchdowns this season. I know that sounds pretty crazy with the how stacked the other parts of the receiving core is. But even if Jamar Chase only has like seven, eight touchdowns this year, maybe six, maybe T. Higgins has seven or eight too. like Hayden Hurst could feasibly lead the lead the team in touchdowns and not be this dominant receiving threat from the, in the other 80 yards of the field so I'm, I'm actually kind of on board with this I can definitely see Hurst kind of taking advantage of that especially on a one-year deal when he when you know he's going to try to prove himself he's not going to be anywhere close to the leading receiver just like Tyler Eifert wasn't close to the leading receiver of that 2015 team but in the red zone taking advantage of one-on-ones I think Hayden Hurst can definitely get near 10 touchdowns this season and that's pretty close to what Tyler Eifert did
0: yeah and you know what the Bengals could use that if you looked at their red zone issues and I, a lot of it was attributed to the offensive line. If you look at the red zone issues throughout the postseason this last year, they were settling for field goals and usually long field goals from Evan McPherson and not getting into the end zone. Ultimately it ended up dooming them in the biggest game of the year, but that is what the Bengals needed to, you know, they need to be a little bit better in the red zone. And I think off offensive line being short up as Malik Wright noted and just having a, a capable pass catcher, the attention brought to Higgins and Chase that will inevitably be there. Hurst, uh, I, I think, to your point, Eifert wasn't necessarily killing people with, the, you know, 100 receptions and, t- you know, Tony Gonzalez-esque numbers except yeah. for the touchdowns, right? I mean, it was it was pretty good. Rece- I mean, he made the Pro Bowl there. You're pretty good reception-wise, pretty good receiving yards from a tight end, but not, you know... Kelsey, Tony Gonzalez type of numbers that it was, it was really the, the red zone type of stuff and touchdown catches that really w- was the trademark of that season. So in, in a way I'm with you, I, I can, I can believe that this is a possibility for her. Should he stay healthy and should the other guys command a lot of attention? Like we think they will. So it was just an interesting point brought up by Malik and I, uh, I, I, I like that one. So wanted to talk about that here. We're going to talk about the schedule in just a second. Before we do, John, do you want to have any other, believe it or not, facets that you want to get to before we do a little schedule talk?
1: Yeah, I'll hit you with one more going back to the defensive side of the ball. You got Joseph Asai being integrated into this rotation at edge rusher. Get an offseason where the Bengals didn't really invest in that position, aside from Zach Carter, who's going to be sliding in to three techniques. So they're counting on Joseph Asai being this third edge rusher, but... He's probably the most athletic guy that, that they have at the position, if anything from that one three-quarter session of a preseason game can tell us he's <laughs> he's clearly on the level of athleticism that All is right. required to be on an NFL field. So believe it or not, Joseph Asai is top two in sacks this season in this first season.
0: Top two on the team? On the team, on the team. Jesus, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> top two on the team. Uh, I can get on board with that. I can get on board with that. I think it, I think it's a reach and I think that it's a, it's a leap to say, he's just going to come in after not playing basically at all last year, um, and and coming back there and, and Hubbard having a a really solid year for the most part. And, you know, you've got Hendrickson, um, who, who had a great year coming over here, but I, yeah, I think, I think if he comes in and proves to be the rotational pass rusher that they need, and you can see a guy that has kind of an early uh, early career year like Carl Lawson had. Um, so, you know, I, I think if I remember, I think it was year one or two of in Carl Lawson's career with the Bengals. He had like nine sacks or eight sacks or something to that effect. So I could see it happening if if all the stars align for him because the athleticism is there, like you said. And he's not walking into a deficient defensive line you know, roster. I mean, there's, there's talent around him as well that will command some attention. And he's one of these guys that not on the radar, I guess, because he didn't play last year. Maybe he sneaks by some people early in the season in terms of attention.
1: Yeah, I think I, I buy it as well because, I mean, I don't think he's passing Hendrickson. I, I think Hendrickson probably doesn't get to 14 again, but he showed enough. As just a pass rusher and just how much he won in true pass rushing situations, and just I think his PFF grade kind of speaks for itself. Like that typically translates from year to year. So he's gonna be you know near 14 sacks. He might not eclipse it, but I don't think Asai is going to get more than him. But who he's competing with for second at that point, Larry Ogunjobi was third on the team in sacks was seven. He's no longer here. BJ Hill had five and a half last year, Sam Hubbard had seven and a half, and I think. When you look at what Sam Hubbard did last year, he played so much down the stretch because he did. He, they they barely had any depth of that position. I, I think you will see Sam Hubbard play a little bit less, specifically on third down, because you want your your fresh and athletic edge rushers and just pass rushers in general on the field, and that will give Osai more chances on obvious passing situations to get in, into the pocket and maybe get a, get a couple sacks here and there, and that may take away from what Hubbard usually has gotten in the past couple of years so you might see hubbard's uh numbers in terms of sacks decrease because they want to utilize him more on you know base downs and early downs as a run defender because that's where he's that's where his strength is and you might see osai take over a lot of those pass rushing duties from hubbard on the edge maybe move hubbard more inside where he can get garner some push up the middle but i think because of how the rotation will evolve with the with the integration of osai you will see his numbers i think eclipse same Hubbard and also just because he's just a much better athlete and that definitely does matter.
0: Yeah. And thank you Russ for the super chat. Just shouting out. Osai season. There was another one that we didn't get to here. Uh, the positive universal project, David G Singh. I-, I can see Tim cam Taylor Britt becoming a leader on our defense. That D- Dak seems to be a bit quieter. I could be wrong. Was Dax a captain at Michigan? I was looking at that a little bit. I, I know he was kind of the academic all big 10 and uh, you know, letterman and all kinds of stuff but you know I I, it's spacing on me if he was actually a team captain there I think that might have been for Hutchinson and whatnot but I I could be wrong
1: yeah I don't think he was a captain but I had I did notice a lot when watching Dax at Michigan like he was always like cheering hyping up his teammates after plays you know he was always high-fiving guys so it doesn't always have to be like the complete rah-rah like in your face type of leadership I think Dax Hill does plenty enough to, you know, rally his guys and everyone leads in their own specific ways. I think with Taylor Britt, it's more obvious for fans. But this is, again, one of the reasons why, like, we know nothing before the draft. And we learn so much about these guys after they're drafted and what their roles are going to be and a lot more about their personal things. And I think we'll learn a lot about the person of who Dax Hill is when he's a Bengal.
0: Well, thank you both for the super chats there. Always appreciate those. We're going to spend a couple minutes here, not a ton of time, but a little bit of time here talking about the schedule before we get out of here because we're going to be talking about the schedule and how it all shakes out officially tomorrow. But, John, you have some thoughts on the schedule in terms of the strength of schedule, and, of course, we can talk about some of the intriguing games that we know will be on the Bengals' docket and ones that may be coming potentially on prime time. Yeah, so as we all know,
1: Bengals are fresh off of
0: not just a Super Bowl berth,
1: but an AFC championship, and that means that they get, quote-unquote, a first-place schedule. And people have taken this combined with the fact that their strength of schedule, at least going off of last year's records, is I think third in the NFL. I think our own James Rapine, or not our own, James Rapine wrote that on allbengals.com. And I think that is... driven the narrative that like the Bengals oh man they're going to run into a lot tougher opponents now that they're that they were a first place team last year and they have a first place schedule the first place schedule and just in general how you do last year how that affects your schedule this year it 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 only affects three opponents and those three opponents are the Kansas City Chiefs uh, the Tennessee Titans Tennessee Titans no, yeah, Kansas City Chiefs, Tennessee Titans, excuse me, and the Dallas Cowboys. That's three games out of 17 that is affected, that is impacted by what how they did in their division last year. They beat the Chiefs twice last year. They beat the Titans on the road. They're probably better than the Cowboys. Anthony, I, I like. Pr- correct me if I'm wrong, but like, d- d- does it, does it does it really that does it really matter that much? I honestly. Like it, it it barely affects the schedule at all. And I feel like this is just a narrative that just not really many people understand. It's more about basically what divisions you end up playing based off the rotational of divisions that you, that you have to play. Like they play the NFC South this year. They play the AFC East. I want to say. Yep. Yeah. So neither, divi- neither of those divisions are tremendously tough, but you do have the Tampa Bay bucks. You have the Buffalo bills. You have the new England Patriots on the docket because, of where your rotation is, I think that more impacts the strength of schedule more than just how you finished in your division. And I feel like it's like the Bengals have already proven themselves against at least two of those teams, two of those teams last year. They're still probably the better team on paper. I don't know. It, it feels like it's a lot of talk uh, for nothing.
0: Yeah. I, I waver on it because I, I think there's, there is some truth to it. And I think there is some truth to it, particularly as you look at, you know, I mean, you mentioned a couple of those games there—the the Titans, the Cowboys, and uh, what was the other one you mentioned there—the the Chiefs. I think you said right, yeah. So here, here's the deal with that. Uh, I, I, I waver on that because those two teams went deep into the playoffs and were top seeds in the AFC and whatnot. Yes, the Bengals beat them, but um, you know, I mean, I, I the other thing with it is in general a lot of these teams improved themselves uh, on the AFC side, at least. So, I mean, there's, there's stuff where you go, okay, Oh, on paper, this looks hard and there are some, you know, strength of schedule issues and and that sort of thing. But like you said, the Bengals did beat a lot of these teams last year. When you look at the chiefs, they lost Tyreek Hill. You look at the Titans traded away AJ Brown and don't have Julio Jones at the moment. So I, you could, you could make arguments there that they've actually you know kind of dropped a little bit in terms of their talent. And then, of course, I, I wonder about the Dallas Cowboys and how they're going to respond after kind of collapsing in the playoffs this last year. And there's all kinds of still questions about the coach. And is, is Sean Payton going to be the guy that comes in and saves the day in a year or two? I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I waver on it. And here's the thing, too. It's much like kind of a, a the, the argument about, Oh, there's no way this guy's going to be there in round two. There's no way this guy's going <laughs> to be there in round three. We do not know from year to year exactly how good these teams will really be. We have an idea when they have a franchise quarterback in place, when they have good quarterbacks in place, you you have an idea that these teams are going to be in the mix. But now the Bengals are one of those teams that have a franchise corner quarterback, that have a lot of talent, that just went to the Super Bowl as a very young team, so I, I waver on it.
1: Yeah, I think the quarterback variable matters a lot. You, you can just run through the schedule, and I think you would do a pretty good job of predicting games based off of who has the better quarterback on this schedule, like Mahomes in Burrow. That's marginal. Um, Josh Allen in Burrow, that's marginal. Dak Prescott, a little less marginal. Deshaun Watson, if we want to go there, that that's also pr- probably marginal too. And then Tom Brady. So there's no, there's no quarterbacks on here that you would definitively say with 100% certainty is going to play better than Joe Burrow on that given week. But like you said, man, it, it's why last year's um, records and determining strength of schedule, it, it's, it's pretty much pointless because we don't know how those teams are going to go on a year-to-year basis. There's so much talk already about the Bengals potentially regressing, not only because of a Super Bowl hangover, but just because of everything going right for them in certain aspects that that can't possibly translate into the second year. So there's enough talking about the Bengals that that could happen with the chiefs. It could happen with the Titans. It could happen with the Cowboys. It could happen with the bills. It could even happen with, I don't know, like the Buccaneers as well. Like Tom Brady's eventually got to fall off at some point. He almost started falling off in the postseason this past season. So yes, they played a lot of teams that were good last year. It's just a matter of how good they're going to be this year. It's a matter of how good the Bengals are going to be as well. And who, actually regresses back to the mean. We don't know. It's why, to me, like, strings of schedule is just a weird thing.
0: Right, and then you've got the Browns. Who knows what, what if any, games Deshaun Watson will miss due to a potential suspension. Um, and, and what's also odd to me is you kind of had the mid-20-teens Andy Dalton plan for some of these teams, right? You got the Steelers with their quarterbacks surround, them, surround the, some quarterback questions with talent, right? Same thing in Miami. Tua's got a lot to prove with all the weapons they just gave him. Uh, I, I think they just signed Sony Michelle as well. So, I mean, you've got him, you've got Tyreek Hill, you've got Jalen Waddle, all of that. Uh, you know, you can make an argument the Patriots kind of have tried to do a little bit of the same thing with Mac Jones, potentially. Titans uh, were doing that a bit with Tannehill and the receivers that they had last year. I mean, there's a lot of kind of the Andy Dalton plan, so to speak, that the Bengals used to employ where it's like, well – decent quarterback some limitations we got it we got to really s- stack the roster around them and and that's those are some of the teams that I see on on this year's schedule in terms of how they attacked it and I think it's due to be due to in part the weak quarterback class draft class that we had this year so uh you know that's something to kind of keep an eye on
1: 100 percent and then finally we got to talk about prime time a little bit because that's what everyone wants to talk about with the uh, Bengals. 10, I believe yeah. there was someone who works at the NFL offices that alluded to the fact that the Bengals better be used to playing under the lights this year. I think the max that they can be scheduled for is five, and the max that they can actually play is seven under the new seventeen-game schedule. We're we're not gonna we're not gonna predict all five. We'll just say that for, for tomorrow. <laughs> um, but Anthony, if there is one or two primetime games that you want to see the Bengals play. Let's, let's name the opponent. Let's name the home away designation or based off of who is actually home and away. And let's name the network as well. So your first primetime scenario that you want to see for the Bengals on their schedule.
0: That I want to see. Hmm. I, you know, I, I guess give me give me the Bills game at home. And give me that one on Sunday night. Uh, the Sunday night, Chris Collinsworth uh, calling that one in Cincinnati. The reason why I want to see the Bills is because we've talked at length. We've, you know, we've seen the Bengals beat the Steelers now. We've seen these Bengals beat the Ravens. We've seen them beat the Chiefs. We've seen them beat. The, the titans you know all of that i would say the bills is kind of the measuring stick they keep being propped up as currently the best team in the league and for good reason most talented team in the league give me that game at home especially with the two bromance fan bases i guess <laughs> uh give, give me that game at home on sunday night at nbc
1: solid choice i think and i'm, I'm sorry to our friends who are overseas who aren't going to see the Bengals play the Saints I think because you have that game confirmed in the Superdome put it on Monday Night football hmm. the Saints I think have had two Monday night games each in the past four years I don't know if a team has more than eight in the last four years but you got Joe Buck and Troy Eggman now doing Monday night I think you' still have the main cast as well it's not just burrow coming home like obviously that's that's going to be the main talking point and it's in the same stadium that LSU won the the National title in 2020. Jamar Chase is from Louisiana. Like he's an actual yeah. Louisiana guy and he went to LSU. Tyler Shelvin is also was also um, an LSU native or a Louisiana native that went to LSU. And then they had Thad Moss, who really shined in that national title game as well. So it's not just Burrow, it's four total LSU guys all coming home into that LSU country. Put it on Monday Night Football. Go up against a really good defense in the Saints, but you have a quarterback advantage with Joe Burrow and Jameis Winston, who you know, is always prone to do something crazy. So the entertainment value will definitely, definitely be there, but put it on its own day. So you have all day to talk about, yeah. you know, the, the homecoming, everything that comes with it.
0: I, I 100% agree with you. And I, I may eat crow when that game comes up here, but the one thing I, that kind of takes a little bit of luster out of that one specifically for, for me is uh, I, I don't know how good the saints actually are. Um, So it's not, you know, a ton of, of star power, star power, uh, you know, against each other kind of, but, I I totally understand the atmosphere and and all of that 100%. Uh, we were doing two each, right? Is that what we said? Yeah. Okay. So my my other one, a lot of talk about Burrow going up against Brady and where where and when that'll take place. And you know, obviously, the uh, some people believe that Burrow is the next Brady. We'll see what happens with that. I'm gonna go a little bit of this of that route, but a little different. I'm gonna go with someone who is attached at the hip of Tom Brady and that is Bill Belichick. And mm. give me the Bengals in New England. They oh came boy. off a, a playoff a, a playoff berth. Give me that one on Monday night with with ESPN like you said the the Joe Buck Troy Aikman. I want to see the brain of Joe Burrow go up against the brain of Bill Belichick. We know Bill Belichick's the guy that says, I'm going to take away one or two of the things you do best, beat us another way. And I want to see Burrow go up against that in New England on prime time to, to really use that as a measuring stick in year three with with Burrow uh, and, and being with Zach Taylor there.
1: I have not seen that suggested from any Bengals fans. Yeah, two AFC East teams. There we go. I like that. I'm gonna finish this off with at Baltimore, the Ravens Sunday Night Football regular Mm -hmm. season finale. So last year we had the Chargers and Raiders, and I believe that game was flexed just because of playoff implications. I don't think it was originally scheduled for the regular season conclusion. But that that game was was banana game. It yeah, was. I mean, it's probably the top five greatest NFL games, in, in my opinion, yeah. at least in the recent history. It's, it's tough to live up to that. The, the standards are really high. <laughs> but I think no matter who you pull for in the AFC North, we all can agree that it's going to be a dogfight. It's going to be really competitive. The teams are going to beat each other up, and it's probably, once again, going to come down to the, the first week of January to see who actually wins this damn thing. And I think the Bengals and Ravens probably at this point Considering the, the whole unknown with Deshaun Watson, they have the, the two best chances of actually winning the division. Bengals and Ravens have experience playing each other at the end of the season. They, I think they play the most in terms of like those final d- divisional games. So they're used to playing at this time of year. But I think the NFL knows how competitive the division is going to be. And they have a pretty safe bet of putting these teams in front of uh, Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth on that last Sunday.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good one I like it well we'll see exactly how that shakes out tomorrow with the schedule release coming we'll do a little bit of a rundown on that on the show and a ton of stuff on cincyjungle.com. I would I just I mean are, are you thinking they get the max of the five scheduled or do you think they get three four yeah I, I say four but we'll see I, I five would not surprise me at all um you know hitting the the trifecta there for sure in terms of Monday night Sunday night Thursday night the whole deal. Um, and maybe, you know, there's some talk about them getting that, that Dallas game on Thanksgiving. We'll see if that indeed gets scheduled there. Um, I have mixed feelings about that personally, but oh,
1: please don't put them on
0: Thanksgiving. I don't want to yeah. worry about the Bengals when I'm eating food. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't really want that either, but we'll see. Uh, all right. We're going to close up shop with a mic drop and a quick remember when, and we've talked a lot about the Bengals coaches and whatnot john and i want to take a little quick trip around or down memory lane when the Bengals were in this big upheaval in 2019 the coaching staff shake up they gave the reins to an unproven guy in zach taylor and he was handpicking his assistants uh after marvin lewis and his staff basically mostly departed there uh so if you remember there were uh, some issues with Zach Taylor coming into the mix because he, the Rams were in the Super Bowl and they couldn't you know, announce the hire and he couldn't get the the staff that he necessarily wanted because he wasn't announced as the coach type of thing. So there was just this big delay and it was kind of a mess. And you go, oh boy, is this thing already starting off on the wrong foot? Is he having to settle for some of these coaches? And one, one was the defensive coordinator. And if you remember, I'm going to pull up some – Stories here on Cincy Jungle, there was Dom, Dom Capers and the thought process. If you remember, if you look back at the McVay blueprint, it was McVay used Wade Phillips early in his career to be as successful as he was. And it really helped him. So you kind of thought new young head coach needed to, you know, unproven, really wanted to have a veteran presence who had been an NFL head coach and had some success. Well, there was, I think, some relationship with Dom Capers there reports were that he declined the Bengals offer to be the Bengals defensive coordinator under Zach Taylor. And then it just kind of kept getting worse. There was, uh, I guess the Jack Del Rio was another name that they were kicking around here. And that one did not, uh, I guess didn't come to fruition. Here's the other article here. The Bengals passed on Jack Del Rio after he reportedly wanted the job was another one that was, that hit the, uh, the newswire on Valentine's day of 2019. So we're talking about mid February and the Bengals can't get their coaching staff together. And if I remember correctly, I think they were coaching the senior bowl that year. Uh, and so they, they didn't yep. have their, uh, they didn't have their coaching staff fully intact going into that, which is a major scouting event for, for them. And so then after all of this, it, it, it turned into the bangles, A week after the rumor that Jack Del Rio turned down the Bengals job, it was announced by the team that they were hiring Luann Rumo. And that came with a lot of kind of like the Cordell Volson pick who Um, a a guy who was a secondary coach for the Giants had had done some coaching in Purdue and different, different places, Uh, a a longtime coach, never a head coach was an interim uh, defensive coordinator with Miami. And so he had ties with Zach Taylor with their crossover there. They bring him in and it was a struggle until really last year when he got, uh, he had health on his side. He had his guys in free agency, his guys in the draft and the Bengals defense started playing aggressive and smart football on that side of the ball. And so for a while, this was like, oh boy, he settled for Lou Anarumo. He could have had Jack Dorio. He could have had Tom Capers. He could have had someone proven. This is, this is just a disaster. And now finally, as we all exercise patience, Lou Rumo and his defensive schemes, ideas, concepts, and vision is paying off for the Bengals as is Zach Taylor. So remember when, Lou Anarumo was, like, fourth or fifth down the totem pole of options for Zach Taylor, reportedly. And if you remember, too, John, go back to USC when they hired Pete Carroll. That was the deal then, too. He was way down the pecking order. They had all kinds of guys, and he ended up working out pretty well for the Trojans as well.
1: And Anarumo was at least sixth, I want to yeah. say. I, I was... I was a senior in college at the time, and I was doing coaching like profiles midway through February. I was doing Aubrey Pleasant. I was doing Todd Grantham from Florida after we already <laughs> yeah. did Dom Capers and Jack Del Rio. Thank God they didn't, uh, hire Del Rio because he's a nut job. But they, they did not coach the senior bowl that year. I just remember that it was the Raiders because I asked um, John Gruden. Remember that guy? I asked him about Brian Callahan and then he broke the news that Brian Callahan was going to be hired as the Bengals offensive coordinator. So they figured out the offensive coordinator before they actually hired the head coach and they didn't figure out the defensive coordinator until a month after they hired the offensive court, after they hired the head coach in the middle of the scouting combine. Quite the, quite the experience. Yeah, I do remember that.
0: Yeah. So anyway, that's my remember when, as we get on out of here, let's uh drop the mic. I kind of, I kind of, Sometimes I've been using my remember wins as my mic drop. So what do you got for us as we head out of here, my friend?
1: Yeah, man. The CJ Uzama stuff. We, the Bengals fans just oh, can't boy. let him go. And it's re- it it really is, I think, a lesson in perspective. I don't want to say hypocrisy. Maybe a little bit of, of hypocr- hypocrisy. Because Uzama ascended himself into the eyes of Bengals fans as the the – the rah-rah guy, right? The guy that the team rallies around, but also the fans, you know, put themselves behind because he speaks for all of us. You know, he's he relays the messages that the fans can't get to the, the rest of the NFL war because no one takes the Bengals seriously. No one takes the New York Jets seriously. That's exactly why C.J. Uzama is saying, I've never seen work ethic from these young players before ever. Or I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but people saw Bengals fans saw that quote from his, I think, uh, today, Wednesday. And instead of taking away what they should have, and it's just hyping up and garnering support of his teammates, and then now the, the fans that he represents, they took it a shade towards, hey, weren't you just with the Bengals, the, a young team that just went to the Super Bowl? Like, wh- wh- why are you burning this bridge? D- 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 it's not this deep. It really isn't. And I feel it's like not. Bengals fans at this it's point, really not. they just went to the Super Bowl. They're they're the next big thing, and everything that you can possibly take as a slight, you're going to take as a slight, because you're not used to being in this situation. You're used to being the punchy bag. You're used to being the team that can't get past the first round of the playoffs. Everything is so personal. It's so serious. The Bengals are good. Get it through your head, right? (laughs) I promise to you, it's not that deep. CG Uzama is not saying, Hey guys, watch this. I'm about to end the Bengals' whole career by hyping up my New York Jets. <laughs> That's not what he's doing, man. He's doing the same thing that he did with the Bengals. He's hyping yeah. his team up at the expense of every other team because that is what he's there to do. That's why the Jets brought him in, man. They saw the leadership ability that he had with the Bengals and they want some of that. They want some of that to kickstart their own you know, uprising in the AFC East because they have a young quarterback. They're surrounding him with talent. You know, they're expecting him to ascend in his second year. It's the same exact equation. And you guys can't get it out of your own head that maybe this is just what they do, right? It's not personal. I saw so many videos uh, doing this other job that I do. I watch other interviews of players and coaches talk about, you know, how they're arriving in this new situation. And this is the best coaching I've ever received. This is the best culture I've ever been a part of. It's not shade of where these guys come from. It's just hyping up where they are now because they need to get their own fans side. They need to get their own stories and their own support garnered. Right? That's just what they. That's just yeah. what they do. It's not about you. It's never been about you. Stop it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, and quite frankly, I think I think some of you in Bengals Nation, I love you all, but some of you need a little bit more to do with your time than to to take take this comment and I mean, I I, I get that it wasn't like, oh, this is you know. Zach Wilson, it reminds me of a lot of Joe Burrow in the work ethic. I mean, just because he didn't specifically reference the Bengals, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, oh, man. We got it. We got to, we got to move on. I, I, we all love CJ. He's on to a different team and the Bengals are moving on as well. So yes, I, I, I agree with you, John. It's just, that was, that was one I didn't get today, but it is what it is. And we had a little fun with it. Had some fun talking about it along with a lot of other topics on this show. Thank you, John. Thanks to all the live listeners. We've got quite a few across a lot of different platforms tuning in live. Thank you very much. And of course, thank you to all of you who tune in via audio or video after the fact. If you can't join us live, try and join us live. We go live a few times a week. So join us for that. And we are going to be giving you more content this week in terms of the schedule release stuff. And more as we always do happen in headlines our wednesday show different other things that we'll be bringing you through the summer as well so keep it to our show and keep it to cincy jungle to get all the breakdowns on the schedules and whatnot john have a good week my friend you as well man all right we'll talk to you all tomorrow